Hello, and welcome to a new season at Bighorn. How exciting it is to be back with our friends. Many we haven't seen during the summer, and many we haven't seen for quite a while because of the challenges we have faced with the COVID virus. We also get to meet and enjoy all the new members that have joined over the past 18 months in record numbers. The growth of new members, appreciation in real estate values, puts Bighorn Golf Club the unrivaled leader in communities around the country. We are so lucky to be involved in such a vibrant community that continues to strive for excellence in every aspect of our operation. My name is Marty Lockman, and I am proud to bring you all the fourth season of the Bighorn Podcast. We will continue to bring you the great stories from the many people in our community with the twists and turns that brought them to this point in their lives. The continuing theme of our podcast is interesting people and their extraordinary stories. Everyone has a story. They are your neighbors, pickleball partners, golfers, tennis players, people you see in the gym or the dog parks, or the poor house in the steakhouse, friends that you have met just hanging out. We often talk about the fact that there are many real estate developments, but this is a community where people live their best life. We hope these stories bring us closer together, teach us some great life lessons about challenges, sacrifices, and hard work with these experiences told by the people who live them. Starting with R.D. Hubbard's story in our first episode over three years ago, all of which can still be heard on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. I am also thankful for the continuing support of Leeds and Sunfine Jewelers, AT&T, and Front Nine Greens for their involvement. We are also very fortunate with these podcasts that we have a continuing oral history of the people who have contributed to the success of the place we call home. Unfortunately, we have lost a number of people in the Bighorn community in the past number of months. And in this first episode, we want to revisit a podcast that is representative of the members we have lost and in memory of all of them. This is the story of Terry Collins, first broadcast 18 months ago. We want to celebrate Terry with his family and friends, along with all who did not get to meet him. Here is the story of great business success, but even greater success in his family life. Enjoy Terry's story, and we will be bringing you more interesting people and their extraordinary stories throughout the season. We miss all of you who have left us, and our love goes out to all of the families that have lost loved ones during these challenging times. And now the original Bighorn podcast of Terry Collins in his own words. Hello again, and welcome to another edition of the Bighorn Podcast. Today's episode is brought to you with the support of Leeds and Son Fine Jewelers, a valued member of our community for over 70 years, and AT&T, who reminds us it can wait, don't drive distracted, and Back Nine Greens, whose work is known worldwide. Remember that golf art 
starts with Back Nine Greens, and we appreciate their ongoing support for our community and our efforts in bringing these personal stories to you. My name is Marty Lockman, and I have the honor of sharing these stories of success, overcoming challenges, both personal and professional, and with great courage and honesty, bringing our community closer together. Our guest today is Terry Collins. He and his wife, Rose, have been members of our community since 2000. His story will encompass all the characteristics that I've talked about. Terry's professional story is remarkable, but as with all of our guests, the personal stories play a big part in his life's journey. Terry, we always start where it all began for you, and that is Escanaba, Michigan. Terry, welcome, and take us on your journey that brought you to this point. Well, it should have been a clue in Escanaba that I was going to be faced with challenges. Because my mom and dad met. Dad was a, in the Coast Guard on the Great Lakes. It so happened that he was on leave in Escanaba. And um, they both happened to go into the same restaurant for lunch. We were waiting for a seat or a table. The owner yelled out, Collins. And both my mom and dad-to-be go running up to the podium. You said Collins. I said, well, my mom's maiden name was Collins, which probably should have been a signal of my life because I went through probably all of elementary school with all my teachers thinking I was an idiot because I didn't know that, the, that Collins wasn't a maiden name. So, but it was legitimately Collins and Collins. That's where we started, and Mom and Dad fell in love. I came along, and Dad's still on the Coast Guard on the Great Lakes, and World War II breaks out about 10 days after I'm born. Spent the first, I guess, roughly a year and a half with Mom while Dad was going elsewhere with the Coast Guard uh, and stayed with Mom's parents in Escanaba which was an old boarding house. And my mother was one of 14 children. And my grandpa would work down at the shipyards. He'd come home and grandpa would take me next door to the boarding house. What, what was a good place for a bar? Just right next to the boarding house. He'd take me over there and set me on the bar and he'd have a few beers after work. So that, that's kind of where we had our start. And then after about a year and a half in Escanaba, it was getting crowded in that boarding house. And so we moved to my dad's hometown in Fremont, Ohio. But it's actually hometown was in hometown was in Williamsport, Pennsylvania, home of the Little League World Series. And then stayed with my grandma and grandpa, which I called Ma and Joe, until the war ended up and it was kind of an unusual situation. And I don't even think they would let it happen now, but Dad was one of five children, four boys and a girl. And all four were in the service during World War II, which they try to stay away from that now. Then he would start to get shipped all over, a lot of times in the Philippines and area of Japan and so on. That was kind of my early start where I 
ended up starting to get more grounded into Ohio. And how long was your dad gone now and during that period of time? Four years. And you were still early years of your life. Oh, yeah. I was four when I started school. My grandfather was the principal of the school. And my mother was working in a, it was called the Top, but it was a little restaurant. Anywhere we ever lived in those days, I had to be within three blocks because we never had a car until my senior year in high school. The family never did, not little of me. So my granddad got me into school at four years old, which some ways I didn't realize it at the time, but I always was kind of thought, well, Jesus, you know, if I, if I were playing against these guys in sports and I was a couple of years older, I'd have something going here. All my buddies were five years older than me. So the ones I hung out on and played sports were eight, nine, ten years old. And there I am, four, going on to five. It's a very unique experience back then. I, I think my grandpa would have been in prison if he were a principal now of the school. If you can imagine this, the whole lower level of this old school, the old Atkinson, was a boxing gym. You talk learning a different style of life. They had punching bags, heavyweight bags, a boxing ring. They had it all. And when I grew up, you fought for fun. It wasn't because you were mad at somebody. It was a sport. Yeah, but I was pretty active, I'm told, that on my first day of school, the kindergarten teacher had to tie me up to the piano leg because <laughs> I wouldn't sit still and I'm running all over the joint. They'd put these little pieces of carpet around you're supposed to lay down on, you know, and take a break. You wanted no part of that. No, no. So, And then as I progressed through the grade school, uh, I got blamed for every damn thing that ever happened because my grandpa knew if, if it weren't me, and there was a good chance it was, that he could blame me and not have any repercussions. Only one do I, that I, unfortunately I did, I thought he was going to kill me. I had this girl sitting in front of me in the third grade. You know, they line up the desk, and I put thumbtacks on her chair. Oh, did he, did he take it out of me? And there was no getting out of that one. So, anyway. Well, you knew there was always in those days there was going to be repercussions for any sort of bad behavior. Yeah, from him. And when I got home, I'd get it again. And Grandpa kind of enjoyed it from the standpoint he could make an example out of me for the other kids. But I, I deserved it. When Dad got out of the service, he was working at a first job, was at the Hinkle Klaus making scissors. And they went on strike. And at lunchtime, because no one had any money, there was a union hall about three blocks from the elementary school. We'd all race down there, and they'd have some soup and bread for us. And we were pretty poor, but I didn't know it. But even in those times, Terry, first of all, there's always in a town like this a great sense of community. Everybody works together, and everybody's in the same boat. And as you just said, you don't know that things could be any better. This is what life is. And I don't sense that you look back on that time as being a terrible time. Oh, well, I think it, it built my foundation and character for life. I didn't know what the hell was, what the, the other part of the world was doing. For a small town, about 17,000 people, uh, and my classes had like 200 people, and I'm about 100 boys, 100 girls. I swear half of the boys and probably half the girls, too, although they didn't have girls' athletic, athletics then. 
were damn good athletes. I mean, going off to the Big Ten and so on. For three years, we never lost a football game. And we, we played all comers. Canton McKinley, which is the NFL Hall of Fame, they would, would play them, Maslin, and these were the big guns in the country, not just Ohio, which was football country. And then in my senior year, I played freshman, sophomore, junior, senior. We had lost in the three years, first game of the year. And they were bringing schools in in the prior years from out of state to play us. And they brought this team up from Cincinnati, which might as well have been out of state because Fremont's near Toledo to kind of position you. Well, lo and behold, this club comes up from Cincinnati and they beat us at our home field. There's 17,000 people. We got 10,000 people at a game. And hell, we were stunned. And later on, I came to know that the quarterback for the opposing team was Roger Staubach. Wow. <laughs> so what a, what a time. What a time. But I, I really think a lot of my values and character were built during that time through my friends, athletics, and my family. My mom and dad were great. Dad... I said we never had a car, and Dad went on from Hinkle Claus to Whirlpool. And for almost 40 years, painted washing machines white as they would come down the assembly line. And was just a gentle guy. Not too many people have described me as gentle. But And my mother's description was me. She says, Terry, I can't believe you came out of me. <laughs> that was hers. But already I had a wonderful childhood. Terry, during that time, did you have odd jobs that you did? Because, again, in a community where there's not a lot of money, we all had to, you know, contribute. Yeah, got it. My granddad, which is another story, went on to become the mayor of the town. But because of that, he would kind of keep his ear to to what's going on. And so he'd come home with odd jobs for me to do. The oddest one was... A friend of his had some chicken coops, old chicken coops, on his property that he wanted to have knocked down. Well, those damn things had feathers in between the lath, wood, and so on. And I didn't know what that was yet. I started tearing that down. I had chicken feathers everywhere. Probably the worst job I ever had. And then, you know, I was a tomato picker. I had a Heinz plant in town. Uh, would work out in the fields with the guys. Whatever I could do to make a nickel. That serves you well, too, because you learned a good work ethic right from the start. Had to, but I, I, I thought it was normal. That's all what you're used to, I guess. How much did he get paid for those jobs, do you remember? Yeah, I don't remember the chicken coop. The one where I actually got a check and some of someone giving me cash was a buck an hour. And that one's a little ahead of itself, because when I graduated from high school, I wanted to go to college. And I went off to Wisconsin State on a partial football scholarship. Even that, and I had to hitchhike, if you can believe it, from Fremont, Ohio to Superior, Wisconsin, which is where Wisconsin State was. On the way up, they set it up for me to stop for two months in Mill Plain, Wisconsin, at a Stokely Van Camp place. That was all the labor in the joint was from Jamaica. And they stayed in these barracks. And there I am, because I'm still young, because I started so young. 17 years old in this barracks with, I'm the only guy that's, that's not really dark, uh, in, in the barracks. And 
going out in the fields and pitching up the peas and so on. Uh, and I got to tell you, I think I might have been in the best shape of my life then. So I worked with some of their accumulated some little ca- extra cash to supplement the scholarship and started and was fortunate enough to be able to play varsity ball for those schools you could play as a freshman at that category for a year. A high school friend's dad said, Terry, what do you think about going down to Ohio State? I said, well, you know, maybe that would be good. It'd be closer to home. And I'm still hitchhiking everywhere. Okay, I had it down where my pretty consistent time to hitchhike was about 700 miles. Was probably 24 hours. In those days, it was safe. Now you'd probably say, yeah, we wouldn't do that on a bet. But I said, well, I won't have to hitchhike. Columbus is only 200 miles away. I go on and get down to Columbus. I'm starting my sophomore school year. And I thought, well, you know, I'd like to to get into some of the military stuff. So I'm taking a physical for Air Force ROTC. In the middle of it, one of the tests they gave was a preliminary indication of tuberculosis. And I tested positive. I never had so much help help on getting out of a school in my life. All the school officials came and started me out of there, and the next day, practically, I was off in a tuberculosis sanitarium in Green Springs, Ohio. And in those days, tuberculosis, they quarantined oh, everybody. You had to be there for, had to be, I was there three months, which must have been the minimum, because they had to run culture tests. And uh, that, that was the real indicator of it. And it took 10 or, or six weeks to do the test, and yet I have three positive ones in a row. So while I'm in there, I always maintain if I had it, it was a mild case. But people are dying around me. My roommate died. So it was a a maturing experience, to say the least. It sounds to me, too. I mean, you're now still in your teens, are you? Uh, I was 19 when I went in. Okay, so 19... And you've, you know, you've, nobody drove you wherever you went. Even when it was to college, you had to hitch a ride. Even to Ohio State, you had to hitch a ride. Yeah. You played ball. You had TB. You get married. You have children. You're living in a trailer. You're building your own septic tank. I mean, you've lived a full life. But at that time, you didn't know any different. I mean, that was just... And as you said, when you have to do things, you learn how to overcome adversity. And sometimes I didn't even realize it was adversity. It was the next hurdle I just had to figure out and move on. And that's when we get back to the question and ask how much I got paid. That's when I got my first real job in a gas station for a buck an hour. I'll never forget, I had got a 25% raise, which most people would think is great. Well, I went up to a buck and a quarter <laughs> uh, an hour. Figured out a way through some financial help I got from the state because of the tuberculosis uh, to get some scholarship money. And along, I was able to go back, haul that trailer, that house trailer, down to Columbus and get back into school. And while I'm in school, I still needed extra money. I'm out at night knocking on doors, selling encyclopedias. This did what I had to do. 
Absolutely. And and did okay doing that. You don't see that much anymore. But American people's encyclopedias. Then after when I got to be 21, I thought, you know, I'm pretty good at the sales stuff. So I saw an ad of people from the Prudential Insurance Company. And so I answered it, and I went in, they interviewed me, and they said, yeah, we'd like to hire you. And so they brought me in, and you go through all this training and prep work, and then you have to do a test with, for the, with the state to be able to sell insurance. And I knew I was going to get found out because I wasn't 21 yet, and you had to be 21. So I went into the manager and said, i got to tell you something. You may want to just have me hit the door right now. I won't be 21 for another month and a half. And he looked up at me. He says, we'll make it work. So I get through that, I get my license. And my first month in the business, yeah, I don't know much. But they give you, a, Prudential was a big insurance company. They gave me all these leads that are just information on current policyholders. Well, you know, most people get spooked out and they'll, call on people they think they're comfortable with. Well, I went right to the most, whoever had the most money. You know, they're the biggest possible. I'm calling them. And I didn't know Diddley. But I'm out calling on millionaires back then. And I think it was probably more because of my chutzpah and youth that these people would see me. Now, mind you, I hadn't made $5,000 in a year in my whole life. In my fifth or sixth week, I made $10,000. Someone's insurance. Uh, it got to be that the, the regional office would send someone out with me because I didn't know enough. Can you imagine me? I was six weeks into it, I'm selling a group insurance policy on a factory. And then to the millionaires, I'm selling the, uh, at that time it was big, it was a $100,000 ordinary life, which had a big commission with it. And so that was my first, I guess, real job. And that's when I decided, you know, I'm pretty good at this. Maybe I don't need to do all four years of college. So I stopped doing that and did the Prudential stuff for another couple of years. And I thought, well, I got to add to this. So I got where I could insure cars, buildings, and that kind of stuff, too. Still didn't know anything about it, but knew I'd learn and build up my own agency. And then finally, through doing that, I didn't like having to look at people and not think of them as a good person that I just wanted to talk to. I couldn't shake the thought that I'm trying to sell them something. That's why I'm really talking to them. And it kind of got to me. I sold my agency, went up in Delaware, Ohio, and bought a paint wallpaper store. And learned one of my most valuable lessons in life. Don't ever get into anything you use, know absolutely nothing about but I did that, didn't go bankrupt, paid everybody, paid all my debts and so on. But after about a year and a half, shut it down. And that's what led me to interviewing with National Cash Registers out of Dayton, Ohio, and McDonald's, which at that point had like six, 700 stores. McDonald's paid $1,000 a year or more. They paid $11,000 a year for their training program, assisted training program cash register paid 10 and I had to pay the fee and both those, those are the days where you paid the employment agency so I took the job with McDonald's and went in there and I thought well I'm going to go into this training program and be all right they said get in the car I get in the car and they take me out to a store 
said, okay, get behind the counter. You're working. This is how you're going to learn. So I'm up there. I couldn't even find a root beer barrel. It's when they had barrels up there. I didn't know the, the price of the items, nothing. But I'll never forget it. Your lunch break, the store's kind of a U-shape. It's when you grab your hamburger out of that bin, you walk towards the back of the store and beyond the, the walk-in where all the refrigerated stuff was. Well, by the time you circle that and come back up to the front, your burger better be gone because your lunch break is over. And I went home after that first night, and I said, I don't think I can do this. I made a mistake. And not only that, I was embarrassed. You know, I through, through the other endeavors with the insurance mainly, a little bit with the, owning my own retail business and the paint and wallpaper, but the set of friends I had built up were more of the, the service club group that had dentists and, and that type of profession. And I, I kept fearing one of them would come walking in, and I'm up there with my little blue paper hat on, waiting on people. And sure enough, finally it did happen. And it was a dentist, I'll never forget. He says, Terry, you shouldn't feel uncomfortable or bad about this. He says, you are in the bottom floor of a good thing. So a combination of that and the other thing was I paid $1,000 for that job. I was damned if I was going to quit after one day. I stuck it out, and it got better and better. And Tell me about that time at McDonald's. We've all heard stories. We've all Ray Kroc and, and movies made of it, and you were there right on the front lines when this all was going on. What was that like? Did you realize you were part of something that was you could never imagine was going to be what it was? Right. But what were your feelings then? Uh, well, I, I knew... Later on, it was probably three months into it, or two, two, maybe even two months, because I got transferred to the Ohio State campus store, which at that time was the busiest store in the world for McDonald's. And so I get a lot of attention through that. I'll never forget, I thought I was going to get fired in the early days. Ohio State went to the Rose Bowl. And so, but the store had to be open. So we're open on the campus. It's what, the end of the year break, Christmas break or New Year's break. No one's coming in. So lo and behold, I bring my little, t- little TV to the store. And all the stores had basements in, in the Midwest. And stuck it up in the potato sacks, my little TV. Well, lo and behold, who in the hell should come in? It's my supervisor. And there's no customers around the place. And he comes walking down, <laughs> walking down the steps, and I'm over with the potato sacks. Are. He says, well, what are you doing? I said, well, there's no one here, so I thought I'd at least watch the Buckeyes. He says, the Buckeyes? He says, where'd you get that TV? You know, this was my TV, the only one I had. Brought it. I said, a customer left it here. <laughs> 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 he picked up the damn TV and left. And took it with him. <laughs> Oh, God. And it was right about after that time that I was a transfer into having my own store where I was the manager. And then is when I met Ray Kroc. And he eventually he goes along anywhere. He's my mentor in the business. And they, they promoted me to the Philadelphia area as a field consultant, which was the person that dealt with the franchisees on their interactions with corporate and helped them with their operation. 
And they were all the old crusty ones, the Crocs original people. I go over there and it's going pretty well. After being there for a year, right, I saw the cherry right outside of Cherry Hill, New Jersey, even though it was the Philadelphia market. They say, you know, we'd like you to go to L.A. Croc, Croc told me. He says, Terry, I think you'd fit in there great. Well, if the people in Philadelphia were old and crusty, the ones in L.A. were worse because they were truly his original ones because McDonald's actually started in San Bernardino, California with the McDonald brothers. He says, well, Terry, I got one thing I want to advise you. You're going to get all these old cronies of mine. Don't you let any of them make you like them. He says, you're going there because you are the way you are. And you just stick to your guns, and I'll back you. And I jumped about five levels in the organizational structure. Never went to Chicago other than meetings and training programs. Normally, you had to go through Chicago to get up to the vice president job. He says, but you go out there and do that. And at that time, L.A. had 200 stores in it. And that's when I started out. And I brought in all these guys that had been in the L.A. offices. It was right across from Grauman's Chinese Theater, my office, the Tishman Building. It was quite an experience, huh? Never forget running into Ronald Reagan. He had his offices there in the elevator going up, and we chatted a little bit. But it's funny how the world takes you. Let me ask you, too. Obviously, Ray Kroc saw some things in you that you may not even have seen in yourself. But he gives you this fast track in a company that's growing leaps and bounds, leaps and bounds as you say. Um, what sort of, what was the relationship between you and Mr. Kroc at the time? Well, it was close. I don't know, out of stupidity, it certainly wasn't out of lack of respect. But to me, he was always Ray. And he seemed to enjoy that. And when he would be in town, we, we would go visit stores. And he'd want to go out and see what's going on. And of all things, his favorite sandwich was a filet of fish. More so than the burger. So we got pretty smart. Every, every time we'd take off to go visit stores, we'd call ahead. And I'll guarantee you, there were baskets of filet of fish dropping in the fryers all over L.A. And you'd go in there and try them. And it was a real interesting experience because Ray was a perfectionist. And he didn't really have a a soft touch of sensitivity for screw-up. I mean, we would be in a store and there would be a problem. I mean, the whole window front there, that's when they had the windows. You And he starts screaming. The customers were hearing it, the employees were hearing it, and of course I'm hearing about what's wrong. It might be something that's papers all over the parking lot, but I'll guarantee you the next store we went to was perfect. The Coconut Telegraph worked well. But he cared. He recognized in me things that normally people might get fired for. I didn't let what I didn't know stop me. During that time period, I was with him when he bought the San Diego Padres. That was an interesting experience. So Pete Wilson, at that point, was the, I think the mayor of San Diego. Went on to become, what, senator or something in California. We go down there, and Pete Wilson comes out and is welcoming me and says, God, I really appreciate you buying the Padres. They were going down. One of the newscasters that was there doing an interview at the press conference said, well, why in the world, Mr. Crock, would you ever buy the lowly San Diego Padres? They've never won a thing. He says, well, 
when you get to my age, the anticipation is greater than the realization. <laughs> right on the air. That should have been the tip-off. Next day, first game he owns the club. Padres are <laughs> playing terrible, which is nothing new. He gets up and walks out of his seat, goes over to the uh, press box, and to this day, those press boxes are locked. But before that, they weren't. He goes in there and gets on the PA system for the game and apologizes to the fans because his team is playing so lousy and that he promised them they're going to get better. Well, the next morning, we're back in my office in Hollywood, which was his old office, actually. Took over his desk and office and stuff. The old Mary, Mary Terrigan, his secretary, original secretary, was now mine. I'm in there with Ray and we're chatting. And Mary comes in. She says, Mr. Crock, we have Joan on the phone, Ray's wife. <laughs> he looked up at me. <laughs> I walked up, but I could still hear it. All I heard on his end was, yes, yes, Joan, yes, Joan. <laughs> Because it was all over the news, all over the country. Okay. He uh, had wonderful experiences with him. He went to, speaking of Joan, we, we had to go shopping to get a birthday present for her. And we stopped at this little shop, um, nice shop. He goes in, and I forget what it is he bought, but it was something very nice. He writes a check. And we get back out to the car. This is in between visiting stores. And I said, well, Ray, you didn't write down the check. He said, Terry, I knew I had it made, but I didn't have to write them down anymore. So that's one of my favorite stories. Tell me again, going back to your upbringing, you're in your 20s before you even have a car. Right. Now you're in Los Angeles. You can't live without a car. And what sort of culture shock was there coming from Ohio to the West Coast, especially to Los Angeles? Well, the first culture shock was when I first got there. I, I think it was the night before I even went into the offices. And I, I feel what Charlie Brown's or something like that restaurant. I'm in there, and, I, and I'm looking at the menu, and I don't know what happened. I see quiche, and I think it's Quincy. <laughs> and, and then I see this item on the menu called artichoke hearts. I said, well, I've never had those. So I ordered some artichoke hearts, and they bring them, and I see this, this, this green leafy thing there. And I had never seen anything like that in my life. So I rip off one of the leaves and throw it in my mouth and start to chew. <laughs> oh, my God, I thought I was going to die. <laughs> because you couldn't do you just you know, nip them off there. But so for every, I was an experience before I even got to, this, to the offices. But to be honest with you, it took damn near two hours to go from my home to the office. I was out in Thousand Oaks, Lake Sherwood, where at that point the country club wasn't there yet. It didn't bother me. I'd stop and see stores on the way back out and in, and it was really a good experience. I just had, I, I could tell I was doing better than the average Joe within the company as far as progressing. In those days, I always shot for the top. I wanted to be the president of McDonald's someday. And I had a real competitor that was very good also. I was right. He did go on to become the president and CEO and chairman. Plus, he was June Martinos, who was Ray Kroc's original secretary in Chicago. So they had kind of a connection there. 
And not that Mike ever played that card, because my knowledge, he never did. I got this opportunity to go back to the Midwest, which I kind of want to get back closer to my parents and family. And I got recruited by General Foods, which, you know, owned, you know Maxwell Calls Coffee. And, uh, and if part of one of them was Burger Chef, a thousand stores. That was in a turnaround. I thought, well, if I'm not going to make it to the top, or if I, if, if at least I, I know I'm going to have to battle my way, and it may take a while. Maybe because there I would go as the head, head of the, a burger chef. Which really, when you're the president of a subsidiary, it's not being a real head of anything anyway. But that, that I learned. But so I thought, well, I, I think I'll do this. And the attraction was to get back to the Midwest. They were headquartered in, in Indianapolis. But as part of leaving, I had to call Croc. Fred Turner, who was Ray's original grill man in, his, in Des Plaines, Illinois, making the burgers. It, they said later I'd become the chairman and so on. said, well, Terry, you got to talk to Ray because you guys had a special relationship. And Marty, I cried. I, I, I had, if my word hadn't meant so much to me, I'd already accepted verbally the job with Burger Chef General Foods. I would have buckled and said, no, I can't do it because he asked me to. I said, Ray, I gave him my word. I just can't do it. He gave me a hug and says, you're going to be good. You're going to do just fine. How was your relationship with Ray as you went on in the business world after that? I didn't see him too often because he was really getting older by then. At that point, he was in his mid to late 80s. So I, I didn't have that lot of con- I had a contact with Turner during that time. In fact, went to there was a camp up north of San Francisco called the Bohemian Grove. And they had an encampment up there, one of them. And uh, they invited me to come up and spend a few days with them, which was a heck of a kick, I'll tell you. Uh, so I did with Fred, and actually we end up on two opposite sides of a lawsuit once where the original, we called it the fun meal in Burger Chef, where the kids could get a burger and a toy and whatever, and a little box. Well, McDonald's came out with the Happy Meal. Well, Burger Chef wasn't in the same category as McDonald's as far as being the, the word of the street in the fast food business, but in the business... General Foods was every bit as big at that point. And, and so the General Foods attorney said, we're stopping this. So they, they got on the phone with, with the president at that time. Turner was in the chairman, and that guy, my name is Ed Schmidt, was the president. And said, you know, we're going to have to work something out here because you have violated our trademark. And they were good on that kind of stuff. Didn't know it about running burgers, but they could do that. And the president of McDonald's, called me, said, Terry, we made a mistake. You know, we should have called and talked to you about this. He says, I apologize, and, and we worked out an accommodation that left everybody okay. But I would see Turner occasionally and some of my old friends from McDonald's, though, that go back to some of the original jobs. And they would call me over the years and say, what, what's it like outside of McDonald's? And one of them, Ed Renzi, went on to become president of McDonald's. By this time, they had presidents of USA and presidents of international and, and so on. But it was the hardest job I ever left. Did working for McDonald's show you 
culture of putting together because it's not just making a burger and it's not just, you know, putting a toy in a box. There was a culture at McDonald's too. I mean, it seems yeah. that way. So, Marty, you are so smart on that. It was doing it to perfection and doing it right. You know, the hamburgers were wrapped and put into a bin up in the front. And if they weren't good-looking hamburger and hot, you tossed them. I'll never forget because Croc was asked that question. He said, how come you guys are so much more successful than the rest of them? He says, we take it more seriously, was his answer. And I'm sure that served you well wherever you went. Oh, yeah. I mean, the, the franchisees normally in a normal organization would take a whippersnapper like me coming in and think they'll run all over me because they've been in it for many, many years. But they knew Crockbox backed me to the end. And, and I actually worked with them, though, too. I'd get in the stores and, and help them out. In fact, like I said before, as I talk, things pop up. And that was one of the first areas where McDonald's had a fairly large group of minority black operators, black owners. And I had jumped in and really worked hard at getting them some help because they were their stores inevitably were in Compton and in all the toughest areas. And I would I'd really get them extra financial help and, and to get them going and so on. And I had this young man working for me as a field consultant, which was the, the path I had followed from going to a store manager to, to a franchise consultant in my office one day. And I said, Reggie, and Reggie went on to become a high-ranking officer in the whole company. Uh, I said, Reggie, I said, what is it? You know, I've done more for this black operators group uh, than anybody ever has. He says, you're right, because they're always bugging me. He says, that's why, because you are helping them. He says, it's because you're doing good. And so it's just a funny They one. don't go to good people if they feel they're not going to pay attention to Right. Them. And don't you think, too, because we've had a lot of people in here, Terry, that you can't, in these roles, no matter what the role is, president to whatever, you can't be adverse to doing anything that you're asking your people to do. No. In other words, you have to go in there and... And bag the fries, or you oh, have yeah. to be able to wrap the burger, or you have to do those Sweep things. Sweep the floor. Exactly. They used to call me potato sack because the ice bins up in the front of the store would inevitably leak ice. Well, if we had water on the floor, it was a dangerous for slipping, and we were right by the fryers. And so we'd get a couple of those bags that the potatoes came in, put one under each foot, and scuff around that walk-in I told you about earlier in the back, trying to mop up the floor. And you had to do that. And boy, I damn near stuck my hand in a fryer one time. Yeah, there's nothing that gains respect than being one of the boys. So now you've left. You've gone over to General Foods. Uh, tell me where it goes from there. I'm with the Burger Chef for four years, going on five. And I, I said, well, I have an opportunity to really be the head of a company. Yeah, not, not a subsidiary. Uh, back on the West Coast, which I enjoyed. With a smaller chain, but completely different, called Victoria Station, which is prime rib and railroad cars and that kind of stuff. And they're in trouble, not doing well at all. Publicly traded though, so I'm going to be the man. I'm going to be the president. So I took the job. Well, you talk about taking on a load. The three founders 
two, three Cornell guys, and they weren't bad guys. They weren't bad people at all. Remained on the board. And then along with, and it, was a, it was the dumbest setup in the world anyhow, those eight directors. And at the end, I'm one out of eight. There were the guys that wanted me to come in and brought me in. And when the founders thought maybe I was trying to do too much of what they had done, and it was going down, mainly because meat had gotten way out of fashion in those days. I was trying to freshen it up and so on, and they were fighting me on it. And we couldn't get consensus on where to go. And I, I said, look, we got to do something here because the company's not getting any better with the way we're having a state status quo. We're at, intellectually at each other's heads. So they bought me out after two years which gave me my nest egg, which is a part and part of that story, where I had only, they gave me 9% of the company to take the job originally. And they bought me out, and I took time out looking around for something to do. And, and during that time, PepsiCo called me. And I had known them through my Burger Chef days. And they, actually, the guy that was the head of the PepsiCo food service had been a divisional president at McDonald's, and I was under its wing there. He says, well, Terry, why don't you come and work with us? And I said, well, you know, I've moved all over the country and I've moved my family with this job, and I finally had my nest egg from the buyout of the Victoria Station stock. And I just don't want to move anymore. And he said, well, we'd really like you to come and help us try to start up some new companies. And I thought, well, here's something that I always wanted to do long run was start my own company. Uh, and you don't have to move. You can set your office right there in Marin County and we'll go from there. I said, okay, I'll do that. And started up a bakery chain called La Petite Boulangerie. And about a year after, I was just getting it going because we started from nothing. It was moderate success, but... Stuff that works in San Francisco doesn't necessarily work in a lot of places. But it was coming along, and they came back. And so with Terry, you know, the guy who really recruited me to PepsiCo moved on to become president of Burger King. He said, well, Terry, we, we feel like we need someone to watch over our restaurant sector, which was mainly Taco Bell and Pizza Huts and the distribution systems. And we'd like you to become the senior VP, which in that point was one of the six leading officers in all of PepsiCo. And PepsiCo wasn't contrary. Everyone thinks it's PepsiCola. Much bigger than PepsiCola was Frito-Lay and other things. And we'd like you to take over the, the Taco Bells and the Pizza Huts and the distribution business. And, oh, well, but we need you back here in uh, Purchase New York. Purchase New York. Uh, I said, well, I'm not moving. Uh, and I made my mind up on that one. I said, okay, well, you can stay there and do it. And I was responsible for all the Pizza Huts and Taco Bells. It was just before they bought KFC worldwide. And I'm traveling all over the world, Japan, shit everywhere. And I'm not liking it. Number one, I'm not liking all the travel and being gone so much. But, but number two, I'm a hands-on guy. And it was almost like a staff-level position 
where you're looking over someone's shoulder all the time. I didn't like it, and so I go in. I said, I, I, don't, I don't enjoy this job. Uh, and frankly, I don't think you need it. The president of Taco Bell I had brought in, who was my right-hand man for my burger chef days, it was very good. And he's the one that truly built Taco Bell up into the, what it had become. He, and uh, the fellow at Pizza Hut, I had worked around at McDonald's. I said, well, my, my advice to you is don't even put anybody in charge of them. You got two people in presence of the concepts. And so, so they did. So, so I'm once again looking around with what I'm going to do. What is your personal situation at this time, Terry? What, you know, you, you want to stay in California. You want to stay. You've made it pretty clear to everybody that's come looking at you. What's the family situation then? What's well, that? the family, it's, um, yeah, yeah, the kids are there. Rose and I are there. And I'm still long-term goal is to have my own company. That's always been in the back of my mind. Well, in the interim here, while I'm looking at different ideas, I'd bought a, a, a yacht. And the guy who owned the yacht dealership came to me and said, would you like to be a partner in my yacht business? I said, well, I don't know about that. But I did loan him some money. And then he came to me again a little later and said, you know, I'm thinking, he says, I think I'm getting this, um, this operation that's a pizza operation. But it's different. It's take and bake pizza. There's only one store, but I'd like you to take a look at it. And it's in Marin County. It's called Murphy's Pizza. I said, well, Jack, let me go take a look. So I go and buy one of their pizzas and take it home. I thought, man, this has got the seed of something that could be big and great. You've got the advantages cost-wise of very little space needed. You don't have ovens and dining and that kind of stuff with it. Uh, it's a simple operation, so it's, it's easier to run labor-wise. Plus, the real kicker was you could take food stamps. And years ago, that was even a bigger deal than it is now because it was considered to be more like a supermarket pizza because it's not baked than, than a pizzeria. And boy, all the bells started going off. There I says, well, so Jack says, well, what do you think? I says, well, I, says, well, I think it's a pretty good deal. It's in fact, I'd like to go visit with these guys. Oh, well, these guys was one person was a company. So I go and talk to him about it. He says, oh, do you want to get a store? I said, no, I'm a, I'd like to talk to you about buying your company. He says, well, I don't know about that. So we kind of just laid there for, for six months, and all of a sudden he called me, and he's in trouble. Says, I can't, I can't make the ends meet. There's some things that I know you know, know from your experiences that would help us a lot. I'll, I'll sell you the story. So it's got, I said, well, Bob, it's, it's got to be the controlling amount because you know, I'm the see the pants guy. I get, and sometimes it gets me in trouble. That's also why I sometimes do very well. So after I got used to that, that's when we really started out Murphy's Pizza from the one store and then started building it from there. Well, and then you took over another company. Yeah. Uh, and my understanding is it's because you had the best product and they had the best the larger, they were larger, larger distribution and everything. They had a, an organizational structure, but not the, not a very good product, to say. Which is a pretty big problem. But yeah, it was called Papa Aldo's. They were actually the first one 
to other than mom and pops to ever open up taking pizza where you go in and order your pizza made the way you want it, take it home and bake it when you want it. Other than that, you had to go to the supermarket and pull one off the shelf. But like I said, we could still take the food stamps. We still had a low cost of operation. As we built it, we built it mostly with mom and pop franchisees. So help break even in those stores was next to nothing. And got her going. And the opportunity came with Papa Aldo's out of Portland. And once again, I approached them. No bites. Once again, six months later, they called me back. They were getting ready to go under. In fact, if I would have waited, probably could have got it through bankruptcy, but that would have had a whole other set of headaches involved. So I paid them. Uh, it, was a, it turns out a bargain. Uh, it could have been a complete bust, but it bought it and started to build it from there. And Papa Aldo's, I think, had 30 stores. And at that point, we had like 15 Murphy's. And after back and forth with all the franchisees who are proud of their names, Murphy's on one side of the company and Pop Aldo's on the other, I said, guys, we're starting to get interest on growing this thing rapidly into other states. And we got to have that one name. Okay. We said, well, we're afraid to change that name that's been on the front of our store for all these years. And we really appreciate what you've done now because now we're back getting ready to, to hum. I said, well, we're going to have to change it. Can you please do some research and, and checking and so on? I said, okay. So I hired this company and I paid them $50,000 or something. They came back with the name Papa Murphy's, which is what I, I said. They said, okay, I guess so. And he says, you, you want to do this anyway, don't you? I said, yeah, I do. But what they didn't realize that a year before that, I'd named my boat, my boat Papa Murphy. <laughs> And so we, and I paid for all their sign. I didn't have to. I paid for all the signings changes. Now, when I say I paid it, this is out of my wallet. It's not oh, from, yeah. Yeah. It's not a shareholder or somebody uh, for all of them. And yeah, I could, you could have just told them, this is the way it is. You got to do it. And we got her going. And boy, we were the hottest thing. And one, one of the things I learned, Marty, as you travel through on business concepts, when you're first really starting to do it well, people don't realize it. They don't really recognize what the hell is going on there for almost two years out. And, and then they do. But I could see it much earlier. But I wouldn't, I wouldn't get into the, you know, the, the trade journals or the business magazines would write you up and so on. But they didn't get to that stage until well after I knew it was all guns ahead. But that is what leadership's about, isn't it? Is to have a definitive idea about what you want to accomplish. Be true to that mission. And people will buy in as they see the success. But somebody has to be at that leadership role that has that vision, has that concept, and and continues to be true to that. You're right, because it's easy to bounce away from it. That's when I would harken back to Croc answering that question because we take it more seriously. Even though they knew they had to do it and they appreciated me paying for all their signage changes and so on, they really didn't want to do it, but they knew that I really believed in it. And it wasn't just off the wall. And we did it and it went smoothly. It, it did well and 
that we really took off and started to grow during that time period. Now this is where the family gets more mixed in. At one point I had 34 family members in the business. And I'll never forget my mom said to me, she said, Terry, whatever you do, don't let this thing fail. <laughs> the whole, fam- whole family's going to collapse. Let me, I want you to go on with that. Pardon me for interrupting. But your mom and dad have to be awfully proud. They, they and were. for them, and I assume they both did, get to see this success. They, they that did. must have been uh, the best gift yeah. you could give them and, and their approval for you. I, I've never really prided my accomplishments based on how much money I made or what my title is. Who I am, I always felt, was how I am with people. And mom and dad get all the credit for that. And it harkens back to that one thing mom told me at one point. She said, I can't believe you came out of me. They did a great job. They did. But you also remembered those lessons from the very start and made them very proud. Yeah, they were proud. And, well, I had, what, two or three brothers in it and cousins and my kids, 34 family members. Well, and I know family is extremely important to you. It's the most important thing. Give us a little more background on the family. Well, one of the nice surprises, Marty, of our family is that they, they love each other. We have a kind of a tradition when we, we get them all together that each one of them has to stand up and talk about what they've done in the last year and so on. And the first time I started to do that, I thought, oh boy, this is going to be, this could be dangerous, you know, with with all of them up there and the kids, you know, they are going to laugh at people and so on. But to a person, they would get up and talk about what they had done. Some a lot more than others, but they would cheer for each other and feel good about it. And it meant so much to me. And they get along. They they get along better with our combined families. Than they do with their natural brother or, or sister. We really have a wonderful family life. Not without its day-to-day things, but they're all good people. Varying degrees of success, but good hearts. You realize it even more as you grow older. My family and the way they were when I was being raised, and what I count as important, and I tell the kids, I said, you know, we've been very successful, and we've been able to transfer some of this success at this stage on to you kids through either your what you're doing with the business itself or through setting up trusts and so on, which was kind of a double-edged sword at times. You know, one of the greatest f- motivators in the world is fear. Well, I kind of took that ingredient out of it. And I have a wonderful family. Very thankful for my family. I got five great-grandkids, Marty, two little five-year-old twin girls, and three young boys from, what, one, two, and four. Fantastic. And 11 grandchildren. And through this all, your partner, Rose, is along with you through this whole ride. And I know that that means a lot. That's sort of a strong partnership and somebody that buys into your dreams because there's times when you have to make decisions to be doing certain things and, and, and business has to be on the front burner and things like that. That's right. Well, we just need to do this. 
when you really know is when they support you, when they don't believe you. And the other side of, of Rose, she's a tire. I mean, she thinks someone's trying to do a number on me. Yeah, I'll usually just cool it and say, well, who cares? It's good to have a right hand. Yeah, it is. It yeah. is. So now you've built this company into how many stores finally just when you're prepared to sell? 1,500 stores from that one store sold at the, the Harvard University Endowment Fund. Through the contact initially came through one of our fellow members here at Bighorn, John Barr. And John called me up one day. It said, Terry, I'd like to talk to you about your business. And shortly after I became a member at Bighorn, John called me. He said, Terry, I'd like to talk to you about an idea I have. I said, well, all right, John. I didn't hardly know him. Let's go. And he says, you know, I'm sitting on the board of this company that does investments for Harvard. Endowment. It was the biggest damn endowment fund in the world. I could see them being interested in your a company like yours in their investment portfolio. I said, well, it really wasn't in my plans, John, to, to, to sell the, the company. He says, we well, ought to think about this one because this is something special. But I said, all right, well, let's talk. I said, who is he? He says, well, it's Harvard. They, they represent the Harvard Endowment Fund. I said, well, that's intriguing. They can't be too bad. They have to worry about a big reputation. So why don't we kick it around? And we did for about six months. And, and, and just as we're getting pretty serious about it, and I kind of agreed on a format for the purchase, part of which I wanted to hang on to part of it, to, just in case. But they, they, they wouldn't do it unless they got a majority of it, which, believe me, I, didn't, I didn't, just didn't fall off the turnip truck. When, when you got the majority, you got damn near all of it. <laughs> but it turned out it was good I held on to it because... The value improved. I got almost as much for my, I kept 15%. Got almost as much money for my 15% when it finally had to all go as for the original 85. And they held on to it for, you know, six years. And it was different. And I said, well, number one, I have to tell you, I'm really happy that you're good financial people because you've made me a lot of money. But you should be really happy that you got me because you wouldn't even be here if that weren't the case. This company wouldn't have grown. It was always polite and never mean. They couldn't understand the way I would think at times. And I would think about what's right for the customer first and the franchisee second and then the overall corporate third. And I really was religious on that. And that would drive all, all of them nuts. I mean, the franchisee thought, shit, you ought to be worried about me more than you're worried about the customer. I said, if I get the customer happy and take care of them, we aren't going to have any issues there. And I told the same thing to the Harvard people. To me, that's the only way I know to do it, and it's worked. Well, and again, it gets back to that culture, and a successful business is a family. I mean, you have right. your own family, with, which has grown exponentially. Yeah. But... Your business was a family also. Yeah. I would pay for stuff for for uh, people because I had a few bucks and they needed it. I uh, hadn't really earned it, but I just felt for them. Like I said, all that signing time. That was like, like $3 million. And 
That was a lot of money, especially in those days that I did it for them. And, but, you know, they remember that, too. Someone would disagree with me violently on issues. But if they knew I really believed in it, and even though they disagreed violently against it, they would do it. Because they said, boy, if he really pleads it strong, we got to, they had to anyway, but you know, we're going to jump on board with, with enthusiasm. Let me go through some questions, Terry, too, that, you know, based on your experience. You've had this enormous success in your business career. Even with all that success, now what does it look like for the future? Do you, do you look at business opportunities? Do you tell me what the future looks like for you? Well, up until a couple of years ago, I did. Because I can just see where things are getting screwed up. And now, unfortunately, I can see I'm getting screwed up, but hopefully it'll turn. I used to tell people the, 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 the pizza concept was so strong, you had to work at screwing it up. They've managed to screw it up a little. And I used to, but, and I'd see other ideas go by and been tempted. But hell, I'm damn near 80, you know. And there are other things in life, and family is very important to me. 11 grandchildren doing all sorts of th different things. But I've never judged them based on high pollutant people would think they are, but whether or not they're good people and they're trying whatever they're doing, just working hard. And that's a full-time job in itself. Oh, family. Yeah. What did you look for in people that work for you? What were the qualities that you look for? Honesty, willing to face bad news, change if necessary, but, but, but believe enough in yourself that you just don't do it to get someone off your back. And if you really believe in it, stick with it. And you know what? Some of what you stick with it isn't going to work. But I've always maintained, Marty, you can get something done with the wrong method. If you want to do it so damn bad, you'll accept nothing else. You just keep pushing forward. One of my favorite sayings that Croc gave me was this old You've probably have seen it. It's about persistence and determination. It's called the man in the ring. And that was always one of my, about the, the, who you feel sorry for, the person who tried and failed, or that poor timid soul who never even tried. You try stuff, and more times than not, you, hopefully it works. But if it doesn't work, and crack going broke seven times was an inspiration along that level. Who are the people that have had the greatest influence on your life? My early years was really are kind of what set me up as far as being almost to a fault, an optimist and thinking I could do anything. It would be my mom and dad. And I, I was fortunate to grow up with a, you know, with a bunch of great families and kids that were my buddies around me. A lot of them were, were good athletes. One of them went on to pitch for the Tigers, and I'll never forget Doug, Doug Gallagher. He, he got to the big leagues for a short while, and he hurt his arm. But he used to come over, and they would run from the other side, of free, which wasn't that far from him, to my side. He said, come on, Terry, I want to practice pitching. You catch me. Well, he was getting so damn good. He could throw the ball so damn fast. I, I said, screw you. <laughs> I'm dodging balls down here. Uh, but from our little town, we we went down to the state finals and uh, 
Columbus, Ohio for baseball and was runner-up to the state championship. And it was, it was, we just didn't know. We didn't think about failure. We, we, we thought about it only in the sense that you, you get up and try again. You know, I grew up in an atmosphere in that time when it was being formative. We would set up a garage in the neighborhood with boxing, a boxing ring. On a slow day in the neighborhood, we'd box. Can you imagine that? People boxing for fun. Yeah. And we'd play ball all the time. Our, our gloves were raggedy, and, and if we'd get all mad at each other or someone hit the ball so far you couldn't find it all up somewhere, and it was quite a life. Well, team sports serves yeah, you well, too. Team sports, they really did. Family, and my mom and dad were in some ways opposite me. They were more mellow, laid back, uh, less risk taker, but great people. Just the salt of the earth really cared about you. How would you describe your management style or philosophy? Believe in yourself. Do your homework. Don't be so inflexible that you won't think of other ways. And the strange thing, Marty, I learned as much from the people that were a pain in the ass as I did from those that were like a buddy. Because they would tell me what they really thought. And it would sometimes irritate me. But I'll guarantee I thought about it. And uh, be willing to listen. You know, my, my, one of the things my dad used to tell me, he says, Terry, you got two ears and one mouth. You need to listen twice as much as you talk. And his other favorite one that I never forgot was, if you're talking, you're not learning anything. Only when you listen. Well, again, I think we see it here, which will be a next question that I ask you. But you have to be willing to take input. You have to be willing to listen, but at some point, one person needs to make the decision yeah. about what needs to be done. No rest, no reward. What brought you to the desert and to Bighorn? Well, first we came down to, we held a couple of conventions when we were smaller, Papa Murphy's, over to Marriott. And Rose would do the conventions. And boy, she's a banny rooster. <laughs> she would get them hopping everywhere out there at the Marriott. And then we thought, we were driving around, we thought we'd kind of like it. And during this time period, we went into partners with the Corgi Angelo, or the Angelo and Company, on a jet. Oh, Citation 2. And through that, we got to talking to Corgi and how we enjoyed our trips to the, to the desert and doing our business. He said, well, I got a house down there, and I think it was Desert Willows or Desert Horizon. He says, I'm thinking of selling it. He says, would you like to take a look at it? I said, oh, yeah. So we fly down and we'll, we'll take a look at it. So we get there and we go through it. And, you know, Corky keeps everything immaculate. That was a very nice house. And we get done on it and Corky had put a spread on him. And he's doing his sales pitch. He says, well, what do you think? And I said, well, Corky, what are you going to do? He says, well, I'm going to build a place out at Bighorn. I said, where's that bighorn? He said, oh, it's just outside of on 74 here. I said, well, let's go look at bighorn. And Corky likes to tell the story that I wrote him a check for a million dollars. Well, if I'd have bought it, I did, but I didn't write the check at that point. Then the first house, I never did. But So we get out here to bighorn, 
this is now 7 o'clock at night or a little later, and we go in the men's locker room. Bullet Bob's in there, one of the original Westinghouse guys, tending bar. And so we go out, and he says, oh, I don't know if Corky had clued him in or not, but he says, well, let us buy you a drink, Bob. He says, what would you like? I says, well, I like scotch. So he lines up about 10 different scotches, shots of them. So Corky and I start drinking. And he says, well, Corky, show me around. So now the place is damn near vacant. No one's around. And I don't know what the girls were doing. But So Corky and I showing me around. And if you remember the old dining room, there was a little ledge that looked over the pool area out there. And you could go out to and the doors would close behind you. Well, Corky and I go out there, and this is after several of those scotches, and the doors close behind us. Guess what? They don't open coming back in. So we're stuck out there. I remember hooting and hollering or whatever, someone heard us and let us back in. So I said, yeah, you know, Rose, I think this might be the place. So that, that's how I originally got the Bighorn. And what were your first impressions of Artie Hubbard? Strange enough, he and I clicked because of what some other people would, would say they don't care for. Uh, he was his own man. His nickname was a benevolent dictator. And I, had, I always thought that if I had a board and whatever number of votes those boys had, I was going to have one more in total. I get that. We clicked, and, uh, and R.D. and I have always had a, a warm relationship. One of the best indicators on, for me with R.D. is that we took a trip over to L.A. And somehow he got into this business with cookies. Now, this is not marijuana. This is cookies. He's telling me about it. He says, well, right over there with me. Oh, so we take a look at it, and it's supposed to be real healthy cookies. And so on, we come back. And he's, he's supposed to, when he gets back, meet with a guy who does a lot of work for just R.D. because he hasn't been doing his job, and, and R.D. was supposed to let him go. So he goes in there and sits down with R.D. Guy comes out of the meeting with R.D. He's got a raise. <laughs> <laughs> for all his bark, <laughs> he, he doesn't like to deliver the real bad stuff. <laughs> Uh, well, Terry, I think some of the stories you've told, there are some real parallels because you believe in your employees. You believe which R.D. is very loyal to the employees, and that's why there is longevity here. But also, you both really wanted people to be happy, and you wanted the product to be the best it possibly could. And you were the one that had to be in charge and have those decisions but you were very magnanimous in your dealing with their employees and the public. Yeah, yeah, he's, he's, he's kind of one of a kind. There's some parts of R.D. that remind me of Croc. He's just kind of a perfectionist in his own way, strong opinion. But if you really can sort through it, it's very much what you said. It's, it's with concern for the, what's right for the, first of all, the members, uh, and a lot of them don't get that. And R.D.'s got his idiosyncrasies. Who the hell doesn't? Okay. He's the one that did this place. Yeah, the business model works for both you and yeah. for him. 
yeah. to accomplish the goals that you want to accomplish. That's and right. other people have benefited for that business model, for sure. Yeah, the thing that drove me here were the people, and, and RD is one of the people, but the membership that he attracted when we first joined, this place must have been well over half entrepreneurs. And that was so enjoyable for me because they wouldn't spend all day telling you how great they are, how everyone was great or it didn't matter to them, whether you're great or not. As we've mellowed 20 years later, I don't think that's quite that exact makeup, but there's a portion of it that is. And to me, that's what's really more enjoyable now. You know, most of my friends now have aged along with me, thankfully, but we love it here. We got and, and, uh, and at the age that uh, a lot of the original members are, this is your friends now. This is the oh. community because, you know, other people, you know, your business relationships kind of go away. But this is this community and these people are your life. Yeah, the big difference is you're here. Uh, yeah, a lot of places, like we have a home up in Tahoe at a place called Martyr's Camp. First class, same, same architect that did this building right here at Bighorn. But it's not near the same feeling because up there you go up for weekends or a week. Here you're here for months. I know we have more friends here than we do in our main house in Petaluma, although we have some good friends up there also. But you're just closer to them here and you see them more frequently they know you. You know, everyone knows each other's warts. You know, I mean, I could, I could tell you some stories. It's pretty interesting. Okay, Terry, what advice would you give the 20-year-old Terry Collins today? I'd tell him to be himself. Be yourself. Trust in yourself. Don't be a know-it-all. Realize who you are is not your title. What you got. It's how you are to other people. Terry, I want to thank you very much for coming in today. I know this isn't always a comfortable thing for you to be talking about yourself and about your accomplishments, but the stories that you've shared today will make a difference in other people's lives. And that's why we do these podcasts, is for you to share those experiences, both the successes and the challenges that you've had. But I really appreciate you coming in and doing this. Thank you, Marty. This concludes another edition of the Bighorn Podcast. And again, thanks to Leeds and Son Fine Jewelers, AT&T, and Back Nine Greens for their support, which allows us to bring you these amazing people and their extraordinary stories. As we have found in past episodes, we can learn professional and life lessons from these stories and a greater understanding of our friends and our community. We look forward to you joining us for the next episode of the Bighorn Podcast with interesting people and their extraordinary stories.